Hello listeners, this is your host Annabelle Higgins and welcome to the final episode of season one of A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare. Today my guest is, drumroll please, Austin Titchener. Austin Titchener is an actor, playwright and co-artistic director of the Reduced Shakespeare Company for which he's co-authored and co-directed 10 stage comedies that he's performed off-Broadway in London's West End at the White House and in venues across the country and around the world. His RSC work includes the stage plays William Shakespeare's long-lost first play, Abridged, and Hamlet's Big Adventure, a prequel. The illustrated children's book, Pop-Up Shakespeare, the six-part reduced Shakespeare radio show for the BBC World Service, and playing Hamlet, Macbeth, and Titus Andronicus, among others, in the TV film version of the complete works of Shakespeare, Abridged. Other TV credits include recurring roles on 24, Alias, Ali McBeal, The Practice and Felicity, plus various guys in ties on The West Wing, Gilmore Girls, NYPD Blue, ER, The X-Files, and shows like those. Austin writes about the intersection of Shakespeare and popular culture for the Folger Shakespeare Library, and since 2006 has produced and hosted the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, the world's longest running weekly theatre podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, Austin. This is a real honor. Oh, thank you, Annabelle. I'm I'm flattered to, to bring home your first season. It's been a fantastic season. We've had so many interesting conversations on here so far. And yeah, it's so great to have you wrap this up. I'm I'm just glad to share my old fart take on Shakespeare on a show <laughs> from my mother's teenager's take. So thank you. Okay, you are far too modest. You are a very cool person. Listeners, he is so cool. So, to begin with, I want to talk about your introduction to Shakespeare, how it all started. Um, I got very lucky. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and, you know, for school field trips, we would go see plays, usually at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. And I I saw my first bits of Shakespeare on stage um where which is i think the ideal place to see him um to first encounter him i guess but i also prior to that i got lucky because i had been taken to theater just full stop i remember my uh, one of my earliest memories is seeing a production of the wizard of oz and maybe i was five um and and we were able to meet the actors in the lobby afterwards. And I was just so, I was, I, my nerves were wrecked. I was so excited and shy to meet these actors doing this thing on stage that looked really, really fun. Um, um, and I had also, I realized later than maybe later than wizard of Oz, but prior to seeing Shakespeare on stage, I had seen Shakespeare in pop culture. I had encountered him in star Trek you know, I uh, uh, Shakespeare, a character would appear on supernatural TV shows like The Twilight Zone and and Bewitched, where they would bring William Shakespeare back from the past to the present to help some struggling writer or to or to just embody writerly genius. Um, um, and I was, and I kind of always in the back of my head was going, well, who is this guy who lived a really long time ago, but we're still reading his plays and we're still doing his plays. So then when I would see them on stage at ACT, um, I would laugh, I would be thrilled, I'd be horrified. Then when I started to read him in school, 
So I don't know, ninth grade, whatever that is, 14, 15. Um, it was very difficult, but I knew it could make sense because I had seen it on stage making sense. You know, so though the language was difficult, I knew that there was a way in. And 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 for me, I think I was also I was I also played at the trumpet when I was in elementary school and I was in the choir and um and so but I wasn't very good <laughs> as a trumpeter and I was a fairly good singer and to me this felt like music but it felt like a music I could play as a an instrument I could play you know I could I would never be great at the trumpet but I might could maybe be good at this Shakespeare stuff so that's where I that's how I got into it. Um, in college, I did very little Shakespeare. I think I took one Shakespeare course at University of California, Berkeley, and it was a Shakespeare in film course because you got to watch movies and what's not, what's not to like about that. Um, um, but I did. But but when I went on to grad school. Uh, I had to, I was applying to both acting and directing MFAs, some of them combined, some of them separate. And I had to do a monologue to a Shakespeare monologue to get into the acting programs. And I had to direct on paper, a Shakespeare play to get into the directing programs. Um, I'm happy to say I got into all of the programs except for Yale. Screw those guys. Um, <laughs> Uh, 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 and but and I and I ended up I I I, end, I got accepted into a couple big acting programs and they were going to give me a lot of money but I really wanted to direct so that was a hard decision um um but but anyway it's that's that's the way it worked out because I, I I wanted to be more than just in air quotes an actor you know I wanted to direct I wanted to be a playwright I wanted to do all sorts of things and not be stuck being only an actor so anyway shakespeare has been just part of my development then of course uh, uh but th but then the first assignment in the graduate directing program was to um take a well-known play and direct a five-minute version of it um and i chose much ado about nothing and so i was reducing shakespeare before i'd even heard of the reduced shakespeare company to five minutes. And then I started running a, my first professional gig was running a children's theater. And we had to, we had to come up with content, you know, to put on six to eight shows every summer. So I started directing hour long versions of much ado about nothing and midsummer night's dream and the tempest. Um, and then, um, and then not long after grad school, I got invited to join the reduced Shakespeare company. And which put all of my interests together in one thing, Shakespeare, acting, directing and writing, um, uh, some singing <laughs> that's good enough to work in a comedy show, not good enough to be on Broadway, but good enough to work in a comedy show. Um, uh, uh, and then from that, it's just I, my, you know, my interest in Shakespeare has just sort of double uh, has doubled down, tripled down, fourpled down um, over the years. And then, of course, we wrote our we wrote our uh, pop up Shakespeare book, and which was handsomely illustrated by Jenny Maisels. That was another great source of fun. And then we returned to Shakespeare for William Shakespeare's long lost first play, Abridged that we wrote in 2015 and premiered at the Folger Theater in DC in 2016 literally on the 14 the 400th 
death anniversary, April 23rd, 2016, 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. So it's sort of come all come round and 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 really the Shakespearean focus has really intensified the older I got. That's such a great story. I love I love how Shakespeare kind of grows with you, your understanding of his works. I've I found that a lot. Because yeah, I started reading Shakespeare when I was quite young, too young to understand it. And to me, of course, you are still quite young. Yeah, I am to an extent, but you know. I'm turning 18 this year. I'm going to university next year, which is a very frightening prospect, but. <laughs> but you're hundred percent, you're hundred percent right. You, you the, the beautiful thing about Shakespeare is that it, it rewards um, re-examination. Yeah. And I guess that's why I personally, I empathize most of course with the teenage characters with Juliet, with um, Perdita, with Arthur in King John who Shakespeare, it's estimated Shakespeare wrote him to be around 16, from what I've read. Okay. But yeah, I, I like these characters and they don't get that much attention, they're, but they're, they're really special in their own ways. In King John, Arthur's youth emphasizes the brutality of this, you know, this world of power, this world of kingship. Juliet, you know, falling in love at such a young age, it's because she doesn't have that attachment, that familial relationship that she needs from her parents these young people turn to more adult things. Well, not Arthur, but Juliet, she turns to something more adult, as does Romeo. She turns to romantic love and romantic affection to fill this void as such in her life. And she has to grow up so fast because of, honestly, a childish feud. Yeah, they, they, these characters have to grow up sooner than they should ideally uh, be required to, yeah. Well, and I know, I know because I interviewed you for my podcast. Yeah. I know that your interest in Shakespeare began at a, from a literary perspective, and it is now evolving into the joys of seeing him on stage performed, which is, as I said, is the, the way to see him. Oh, yeah. But that's the line that I I have to walk not only when I'm directing Shakespeare, but when I'm writing about him for the Folger, because Shakespeare rewards so many different academic examinations, mm -hmm. but I've seen too many productions that feel like academic papers, you know? And so for me, I'm only, sometimes, when I'm directing Shakespeare, or when I'm acting him, I guess, too, I, I, I'm only interested in... I'm only interested in those aspects of Shakespeare that I can realize on stage through performance, through staging, you know, all these other ideas, you know, and I've had arguments with collaborators say, well, what about this idea? I said, well, that's a fabulous idea. Go write a paper about it. You know, well, you could, ex you could explain something in the director's note. I said, I hate director's notes, which I do. <laughs> if you have to explain it in a director's note, that means you failed to do your job as a director. So I have very, <clears throat> a grumpy old man <laughs> convictions about feelings about uh, uh, how um, how those lines should be drawn. I actually I kind of have a similar story to that. I directed a production of King John with a company that I founded with my friend Fenna Capella. I talked about this on your podcast. Uh, we performed. We did a production of King John, and 
So when once we'd cast everyone, Fenna and I put together this detailed leaflet as such with like all our different ideas on like different themes, different motifs, different character studies of King John, and we sent it to the cast, and they were like, "You guys, you guys are more on the academic side, aren't you?" <laughs> and I just said, "How could you tell?" <laughs> well, and all of that stuff is fascinating, but like I remember seeing that there's a famous video of Ian McKellen from um from uh is it playing john barton's uh playing shakespeare is that what it's called um anyway it's so famous i've forgotten the name of it but 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 he's a young ian mckellen pre-gandalf ian mckellen and he's talking about macbeth's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech and he's talking about it with such great intelligence and insight into the speech and he goes on for a very long time and then he and then he says and now i'll do the speech for you and he does the speech but my takeaway as an actor is to go, oh, so should I just go more slowly? Because that's what you're doing. That's all I'm getting is that you're taking it deadly slowly. And that helps, again, that helps me not at all. Despite all that great insight into the text, if you can't make it come alive in the speech, then I don't know, I don't know how that helps you. Yeah. I set myself a challenge a couple of years ago. Um, because I I do like creative advent calendars every year before Christmas. So the last couple of years I've been doing figure skating advent calendars, recording a new video of myself skating for every single day leading up till Christmas. But a couple of years ago, before I started, you know, using social media, I decided I was going to do a Shakespeare advent calendar just for my parents. So every day I learned a new monologue or sonnet. Of course, I didn't have time to do all the, you know, background research, all of the analysis of the monologues. I just had to learn them every single day. You learned them. You didn't read them. Yeah, yeah. I, I memorized, I think it was 13 monologues and 12 sonnets, mostly from Shakespeare's comedies because it was Christmas. I thought wow. tragedies don't really have a place at Christmas. <laughs> I say this with great affection, nerd. <laughs> yeah, you could say that, but yeah. <laughs> And it was really fun. And I kind of regret that we didn't record it now because it was really fun. I think, yeah, I only made a slight mistake with one sonnet and it disappointed me for the rest of the year, which admittedly wasn't long, but still. <laughs> right, right. But it was a lot of fun to, you know, just dive into the text, um, possibly read the scene it comes from and then just do it. Just learn the lines, do my best to get what they mean. I think I was probably, what, 12 or 13 when I did this? And I just did it for the fun of it. I just did it because I thought, okay, this is this is a different take on Advent. Let's try it. Well, and there's something there is something to be learned in the doing of it too. I mean, I I mean, I think it's true for actors generally. You can sit around and talk all day, but you, at a certain point, you've got to get on your feet and do it and make the thing happen. And again, what's great about Shakespeare is that you'll never get it right. You'll never get it perfect. It's it's just that gold just keeps receding. You know, it's still out there in the distance. Un it's unattainable, but lovely to shoot for. Yeah, I think I think what's sometimes difficult is because, you know, the great characters, Lear, Hamlet, Richard III, they're so revered. They're placed on so many different pedestals. Sometimes they can be scary to approach. Sometimes you, know, you can read the monologue and think this is so cool. Now, how on earth do I stage this? How on earth do I do this? And yeah, that's something that's something I've done a lot. I've kind of looked at it and thought, okay, these monologues are amazing, but I'm not, I'm not good enough to do these. Well, and also to, to be fair, a lot of them, you know, a lot of it isn't as great as some of the other parts of it too. 
You know, we. Uh, I think it feels like it's a big secret, but uh, everybody, everybody cuts Shakespeare all the time. Um, every production cuts him a little. I mean, to, to to varying degrees. And I think there's only so much an audience can take in, also in an evening. If you do the whole of Hamlet from beginning to end, I don't know how much of the audience is going to stay with you, but probably less than half. Right. And the, and 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 you don't want the audience so numb to this uh, this poetry that they can't they can't, it's like staying in a museum too long you you know you just become you can't see anything i mean i think i i do i do feel like shakespeare can be a a, a hedge that needs trimming in order to really appreciate it yeah i mean when you think about it we don't know much about shakespeare we know barely anything we have a few signatures we have knowledge of like court dates and stuff we have Vague idea of when he was born, vague idea of when he died, lost years, years where we have no idea what happened, and people who question whether Shakespeare was really Shakespeare, I personally believe he is. But that's something for another day. Uh, yeah, but we don't know about his writing process, but like he was very theatrical, even about his process. He was always talking about the theatre he worked in. Well, that that's how, I, yeah, that I'm drawn to that aspect of Shakespeare a lot because I think because we know so little about Shakespeare, um, he becomes he becomes a mirror for us. We see in we see ourselves in Shakespeare, you know. So I'm drawn to the Shakespeare who was an actor but also a writer and a director who ran a company, who. Um, who performed a lot, who did, who put on lots of different hats and was very, uh, very meta theatrical about bringing his own knowledge of theater into his play. So even a struggling, an existentially struggling Danish prince knows a ton about theater for some reason, you know, and that's how you, that's how I am convinced that Shakespeare was a real person and a man of the theater and that his, that he took a lot from his actors because he could, he was writing for a group of actors that he knew their skills and their strengths and their weaknesses. I mean, this is, this is something that I, I got to interview um, Sir Stanley Wells for my podcast and he just shared with me the insight that Richard Burbage, Shakespeare's leading actor um, was never asked to sing in any of the great leading roles that he played, Hamlet, Macbeth, whatever, Lear, none of them. And the only time he was asked to sing was in Much Ado when he played Benedict, and they make fun of how bad his singing is. <laughs> so clearly Burbage wasn't a singer, and yet his roles, the roles Shakespeare wrote for him, aged as Burbage aged. Yeah. So Shakespeare was using what he had to hand to create his great work. Yeah, he wrote, he tailored his works to the strengths of his actors. I mean, uh, I talked about this in The Teenager's Take in one of my episodes. Like, if you look at the first folio, I, I read uh, Professor Emma Smith's book about the making of the first folio. And in some places, you'll see William Kemp's name instead of like the roles he was playing, like Falstaff. Right. You'll see his name in the text just because Shakespeare sometimes confused the character and the actor. He was writing for his company. He was writing for the world he worked in. Exactly. And that, it's so cool because, yeah, we don't know much about his writing process, but we can find little tidbits that keep you wanting more. And this mystery about the man is what makes him so interesting. 
Well, it's true. And it's why and I, I think nature abhors a vacuum. So we all just keep rushing in to fill in the Shakespeare's um, the blank spots in Shakespeare's biography with supposition and invention yeah. and imagination. Yeah. And yeah, uh, we were talking about him referring to the theater in his works. It just reminded me of uh, Sonnet 23. As an unperfect actor on the stage who with his fear is put beside his part or some fierce thing replete with too much rage whose strength's abundance weakens his own heart. I don't know, I I love that sonnet. That's one of the sonnets I did for my advent calendar years ago. I didn't fully get it at the time, but I thought it sounded cool, so I just learned it. <laughs> well, and I'm and I'm drawn to Hamlet's monologue, Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, where he talks about how how he's so pissed at himself for being unable to to get the sort of passion that he rightly should have when this mere player, this actor can summon passion for Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him? You know, he compares Hamlet compares himself to an actor and finds himself wanting. I love that. Yeah. Whose strength's abundance weakens his own heart. I think, I think you can apply that statement to Lear, to the character of mm. Lear. I can't remember who said it, but I think it's like, when you're Lear's age, you don't have the strength to play Lear. But if you play Lear when you're younger, you don't have the experience to play Lear. I can't remember. I think someone said something along the lines of that. Might have been McKellen again. <laughs> probably. Yeah, probably. But And William Hazlitt, when he wrote his book, Characters of Shakespeare's Plays, when he wrote about King Lear, I think he said something along the lines of, oh, we wish we could gloss over this play because I literally don't have the words to describe how perfect it is. And I think if you look at Lear as a perfect play, it loses some of its perfection because the perfection is in the humanity. It's in the imperfection, if that makes sense. It, 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 does, it does make sense. And I will have no problem looking at Lear as an imperfect play. Gun to my head, Lear is, uh, is the, uh, an overrated Shakespeare play. Not that it's not great, but that people revere it too much. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. So many of Shakespeare's plays... Uh, I think that's the problem with bardolatry, isn't it? I've I've tried to reclaim the term myself. I call myself a bardolater, but I do it in a different sense, not in the gatekeeping Shakespeare was God sense, but in the Shakespeare was a man. Shakespeare was a man who has conveyed so many fascinating sentiments that we can relate to. And he wouldn't be, his great stuff wouldn't be great without his not great stuff. Exactly. No person is perfect. Yeah, I think an irreverent approach, well, obviously I've been doing it for 30 years, an irreverent approach to Shakespeare is the most reverent way to approach him, to take take him take him as a man. What is that quote? I bet you can pull it out of the sky. I actually can't, sorry. Damn it, neither can I. Damn it, wouldn't it be cool if we could? I wish, yeah, I wish I could memorize all the quotes because like I, I went through a period when I was younger where I would just try and memorize every single Shakespeare quote to sound cool in conversation because I thought this was what would make me sound cool at school. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. Well, and and but in talking about Lear and 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 and, and I suppose imperfections, I, I saw the production of the National Theater with Simon Russell Beale as Lear. Um. And that was the first play. And that was only, what, five or six years ago? Um, that was that was the first time that I understood Lear as not a play about being old, but as a play about getting old, as a play about losing one's power mm. uh, and control, uh, which meant that Lear didn't have to be a man who's too old to play Lear. 
You know, you you could be you could be a man in your 40s and 50s still vital enough, but losing it as we all are. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. This has been such such a fascinating chat that I've forgotten about the questions I had to ask. So <laughs> I love a conversation that goes where it goes. But uh, yes, I'm now ready to submit to your questions. I was wondering if like there's been a particular performance or a particular play of Shakespeare's that's like really impacted you or been like a, a switch on moment as such. Like, has there been a particular moment that's, you know, set your imagination on fire? Yeah, I, I love that question because it's a much, much more helpful question than what's your favorite Shakespeare? Because I don't have sha favorite Shakespeare's. I have favorite productions of Shakespeare. And the production of Lear that we were just talking about is one of them with Simon Russell Beale at the National. And and my friend Adrian Scarborough as the fool um, was uh, transformative in my way of understanding uh, that play. Um, one of the very first Shakespeare's I ever saw was, again, at American Conservatory Theater in, in um, San Francisco. This was in the 70s. And it's actually on YouTube. You can find this on YouTube. It's a production of Taming of the Shrew. And it's done in a very Commedia style. So, uh, and it's Mark Sanger, who played the Beastmaster in a bunch of movies in the 70s. I didn't see them. And I'm looking at your face and I'm not even sure you've even ever heard of them. But they were quite popular, and he looks amazing with his shirt off, which he spends a lot of time in in this production of The Taming of the Shrew. But it was so funny. It was so funny. And what I loved about it was that both Petruchio and Kate were equally problematic. They were made for each other. And I loved that. I, 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 It was transformative. And I've had this argument with my own children, who are now in their 20s, you know, and they're, and they're telling me, like, I don't know how, what a problematic play Taming of the Shrew is. And and I and I like to say, look, I'm sorry. Do, do they know who they're talking to? <laughs> right. They do, fortunately, because they are because um, my wife is also an actor and a comedian and an improviser. And she was a, she wrote and performed shows at Second City. Um, uh, of So she we're both we're the, the, our kids are both children of comedians so they they so they grew up knowing that knowing what jokes are which is helpful but um i you know and the joke i said but there's some truth in it which is like i told them look 400 years ago your mother would have been called a shrew and shrews deserve love stories too but they need men who can stand up to them and petruchio is clearly looking for something other than what he's being offered you know, in this patriarchal capitalist world in which they're living, where money is being exchanged for daughters. And it's it's a horrible, horrible society that they're both Kate and Petruchio are having to navigate. Yeah. And then there's, yeah, there's Kate's final monologue about, you know, the duties of a wife that is, yeah, it's caused so much controversy over the years. I remember my drama teacher gave it to me one summer to learn. I, my mom had emailed her because I was complaining that I was bored and I wanted something to do <laughs> that was theatrical. And she sent me this monologue and I was, I think I was probably even, what, 10, 11 at the time. So I, I didn't fully get it, but I understood that there was something that didn't sit right with me with this monologue. 
Oh, yeah. Well, and, and particularly out of context, it doesn't sit right. Yeah. In context, and this was explained to me by my wife, Dee, who's an improviser, in context, you see them in real time learning how to play with each other, learning how to be with each other, learning how to play the game of, ooh, I say this, it's the sun. No, it's the moon. No, it's the sun. Oh, okay. I see we're playing a game here. Not a funny game, maybe not even a ha-ha game. But my friend Shauna Cooper, who I've, I've I've interviewed about Taming of the Shrew on my podcast, she says that it's a play about navigating relationships, being about, you know, which we all have to do. So that final speech is a is a final navigation of the relationship and agree with it or don't agree with it. You, you people, a lot of people don't want to be in that relationship. I'm not sure I want to be in that relationship. I just, yeah, I wanted to mention, I've seen, I watched a brilliant ballet of the taming of the shrew and it was really interesting because I mean, Kate's, Kate's dances with Petruchio are obviously hilarious to watch they're so active so passionate so erotic in a sense and then there's this moment soon after she's met him when everybody pauses the spotlight's on her she does this little solo and it's basically a view inside her head so Petruchio's frozen and she's kind of she goes to him she she touches him she kind of studies him in her mind Mm. and you can see that there's there's the beginnings of an attachment there's beginnings of romance of fascination there but and every time every time she touches him she then you know draws her hand away slightly disgusted with herself but her movements which have been really sharp and angular beforehand soften and then she returns to the position that she was in before and this was him trying to kiss her and what she what she does she actually kisses him in this moment as if like you know imagining what would it would be like and i thought that was so good and then everyone wakes up, everything goes back to normal, and she spurns him, and it's as if it never happened. But we know it's there. Interesting. Does that reveal the power of Shakespeare that his characters can be told in dance, or do you need to have know something about the play to appreciate what you were seeing in a ballet? Well, I think you'd need to know a bit about the characters, a bit of context, but the story is really well told in performance. Like the relationship between Kate and Bianca, the relationship between Kate and the suitors, she is very aggressive. And I think it, I think it's wonderful. Well, I, and getting back to your question about transformative, I loved, I got the privilege to direct Twelfth Night for the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company. And it was the first time I'd ever worked on that play. And it was so much fun. Because, again, strong women in Shakespeare often have to settle for men who are not worthy of them. So uh, it's one of the it's one of the things we imagine in William Shakespeare's long lost first play abridged. What might he have done when he was a young writer and didn't know the rules? He might have paired up <laughs> Beatrice and Rosalind together for instance, because they are far more worthy of each other than any stupid guy in their plays. Um, but finding out that Olivia is attracted to Cesario, who was really Viola in disguise, because all the other men in her orbit are 
idiots, either either preening idiots like Orsino, drunken, flatulent burdens like Sir Toby, or um, controlling Puritans like Malvolio. Yeah. You know, so Cesario suddenly looks like a really solid option. And then to discover that they, they are sisters in grief, really. Olivia has lost not only her brother, but her father. And, uh, and Viola thinks she has lost her brother. So they are both respond, re rebounding from intense grief. So they, there's, a re there's a reason that there's attracted, they're attracted to each other and not just because it's funny because a girl's putting on a guy's clothes. Yeah, that is, yeah, there's a very good reason for it. And I think, yeah, every time that Shakespeare does that, you know, woman dressed as a man, when it's actually a man dressed as a woman dressed as a man, there's a lot more than meets the eye. I mean, he did that in his very first play, or what we think is the very first play, yeah. The Gentleman of Verona. Yeah. And he did it throughout. He did it throughout his works, and it reveals something different every time. Like, I loved, I loved Rosalind's epilogue to As You Like It, when she is very open about this fluid identity that she has assumed on stage. She, he, she. We don't really know. Well, we don't know. And then it's part it's my favorite aspect of theater is is just actors of any kind putting on clothes and playing dress up and saying, I put on this wig. I'm now this character. That's what we do all the time. And 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 so, I mean, when people make fun of Shakespeare, it's like, wait, I'm supposed to buy that that's that that's supposed to be a woman when we know that it's a man. But well, yes, that's what we do in theater all the time. That's exactly what we do. We walk in and as soon as the character, we tried to make jokes about that in our shows, like we'll say, we'll put on a wig and say, oh, well, now this man is a woman. And, but then we try to make a joke about uh, how ugly this woman is. But we've already established that she's not ugly. And so people don't laugh because it's not true, because we've already established one thing. And now we're trying to make a joke and change people's perceptions of what they've just been told. And they don't buy it. They're not. It's it's a great lesson of comedy too. That if you're not telling the truth, they're not going to laugh. Um, yeah, Shakespeare played around so much with genre, but that is that is a whole other conversation. And I have more things to ask you. Genre and genre. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about, but I wanted to ask, as an actor, as a director, as a writer. How has working with Shakespeare impacted everything you do? I mean, I think it's a fairly obvious answer, but I'll ask anyway. Um, how? Hugely. Um, I mean, mostly because, as I was mentioning, the the theatricality of what he's doing and 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 not just how he's using the, um, theatrical tricks, but the fact that he kind of talks about the tricks that he's doing. The fact that he acknowledges you know, in, in the Henry V prologue and telling the audience to imagine you see these things. If you see this thing, imagine it's something else. That's that the, this is the fundamental strength and power of theater and to, to, to work in, and not, and not that Shakespeare is the only person that did this, but we are, we have, we have held him up to such a high level um, he become he becomes a common language, which I understand is is also problematic. But it, but he's a way that we can talk about. He's a way that we can. He's a thing that can be shared, 
And anybody who's going into theater now, and particularly if you're writing plays, you want to know what's been done already. Yeah. So you can play off, learn from it, play off of it, get rid of it, but at least at least know it. And it's also humbling when you go to write something and you realize that whatever you want to write, Shakespeare's probably already written it and in iambic pentameter. I, I write myself. I've written some plays. I've written some short films. I love writing. I love experimenting in different styles. But all of the plays I've written have been, like they have Shakespeare in them somehow. In the very first play I wrote uh, was at the beginning of 2021. I wrote it inspired by the character of Time in The Winter's Tale, you know, Time's Interlude, which is a speech that not many people remember, but I don't know, something about it just mm -hmm. hit me first time I read it. And I wrote this play about the entity of time, like freezing the moment mm -hmm. at the last second of 2020. Oh, cool. For this group of young people who hadn't processed everything that's happened and weren't ready for the new year. Yeah. And that's what the play is about. It's about them, you know, going through their struggles and coming to terms with what they're going through and learning that it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. Just need to have a bit of faith. Yeah. And then when they're ready, time unfreezes everything. And yeah, and the next play I wrote was A Midsummer Night's Zoom, which I think you can tell from the title. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, it was, that was a lot of fun as well. It was just yeah, a bunch of young people online doing a Zoom production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And the person playing Puck, which was me in the production, had this, yeah, this flower that they'd got as a prop. Uh, of course, it actually, it's a magical flower and it transforms the, the actors into their characters and they have to parody the whole play in order to get them back to normal. I love it. So it's so much fun to reference Shakespeare in your own writing. Well, and you mentioned, you mentioned time, um, <clears throat> the character of time in Winter's Tale. So if I were to direct Winter's Tale, I would absolutely bring time in at the beginning of the play. So he's not a surprise or she is not a surprise in act four, I think, when time comes in. That's that difference for me of making Shakespeare work on stage. Winter's Tale, interesting from this point of view, is Winter's Tale is one of those plays that I enjoy reading more than I enjoy seeing. Yeah, it's it's really hard to watch. It is. And I and Leontes is my least favorite character again gun to my head same yeah i, I really uh, i can't stand him there's another there's another great ballet in it uh, the royal the royal ballet did it it's by christopher wielden of the winter's tale and when you, you watch leontes you know become overcome by jealousy and when you when you see that as a dance you know every expression every movement is possibly exaggerated in a sense but it depicts this emotion very viscerally but I, I love what time says, I that please some try all both joy and terror of good and bad that makes and unfolds error. That really summarizes a lot of what happens in most of Shakespeare's plays that makes and unfolds error. I mean, Viola says, oh, time, thou must untangle this, not I. Tis too hard a knot for me to untie. Yeah, just stick around. Stick around. This will get, this will get resolved. <laughs> stick around. Yeah, this, this will be figured out, but um, God knows when. <laughs> Especially in Hamlet. God knows when. God knows when, yes. I have, I have one last question, and it's one I've been asking every episode this season. And it's, and I will probably continue to ask it, everyone this in the future. What does Shakespeare mean to you? Oh, well now, yeah, put more pressure on me. <laughs> um, I love that he is a common language. And I think he's terrific. And 
And what I hope for Shakespeare and what I'm always trying to do with Shakespeare is clear away the schmutz that has been attributed to him, clear away the idea that he's supposed to be the best or better than anybody else or genius or important or good for you because he was writing for the public and he only made his money when he put butts in seats. He was an entertainer and a showman. And that's what he means to me, I guess, is that he was trying to entertain his audiences. And with that as his goal, he wrote some timeless, timeless and important and genius level work. But that wasn't his goal. It, that was an accident. Yeah, exactly. I I absolutely adore your folder articles. I may or may not have binged them just before doing this, but <laughs> I yeah, I I loved that you pointed out the end of Prospero's speech in the Tempest when he talks about what he what the play has been doing. He says to please. His name has been to please. Yeah, to please the audience. That is literally what Shakespeare did. Yeah, he wasn't that. He was catering to you know the plebs in the groundling section and the people in the stalls, the people with cushions, you know, the people who could afford. So rich that they could afford a cushion. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, there were some people who were like sitting on stage, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I wish they still did that nowadays. I would absolutely love it. <laughs> they did apparently for the Mark Ryland's 12th night. Oh my God, really? Yeah, I think so. I think so. That was another, you know, talk about transformative. That was another great production. Just to see, not not only to see Rylance in that role, but the fact that they cut the text, the fact that just Rylance stuttered in his delivery of some of the speeches when he was emotionally charged, because that's from the text. They talk about Olivia stuttering. Mm -hmm. And he literally did that. The, the meter and rhythm of the verse be damned. He stuttered. I loved that. If you focus too much on the iambic pentameter, on the punctuation, on the syllables in each line, you lose the essence of the speech. And the punctuation is nonsense. We don't know who punctuated what. Yeah. So yeah. Your your punctuation is as good as anybody else. Exactly. If I mean the first folio, it, it was printed by, you know, printers. It wasn't printed by Shakespeare himself. He didn't choose where every single comma or hyphen or anything. He was dead. Dead. He was like he'd been dead for a while. <laughs> and it was just it was an act yeah. of reverence in a sense in his memory. And I think that's actually a beautiful thing. I think it's a great thing what Hemings and Condal, I think it's a great thing that they did that. I think it's really a nice thing to do. <laughs> Have you read Lauren Gunderson's play, The Book of Will? No, I haven't, but I will put it on my list now. It's You'll love it. It's I I played Richard Burbage in the Midwest premiere of it, and it is, it is about Hemings and Condal putting together the first folio. And it's one of the greatest depictions of Shakespeare ever, because it doesn't depict him at all. You, he's just depicted in the memories and the banter amongst his colleagues and friends. Yeah. It's really a lovely play. If you, Yeah, if you think of Shakespeare as a person outside of, you know, the whole William Shakespeare, great author, you know, 
Swan of Avon, all of that. If you think of him as a person, as a father, a writer, a husband, a lover, if you think of him in all these different roles, a son as well, yeah. as a person just trying to make his own way in London to try and be more than the country bumpkin he was born as, if that's how you want to look at it. If you look at him like this, there's so much more to uncover. I mean, Maggie O'Farrell wrote her book, Hamlet. She never refers to Shakespeare by his name. Exactly. And it's a genius piece of work. Yeah, it's, it's a great book. Yes, imagining Shakespeare, because we know so little about him, People are, are are drawn to imagine what he might have been like. And one of the things I did, I mean, I do my Folger articles, which are lovely, and I really love doing them. But I was asked to contribute to an actual, an actual academic book that I think is going to be published this year by Arden called Shakespeare, Shakespearean Biofiction on the Stage and Screen. Um, and it's fascinating because I I think in many ways. Uh, imagining Shakespeare in fiction, as in Hamnet or in 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 Lauren Gunderson's play, The Book of Will, is a more responsible way of getting at Shakespeare's biography than going by the facts, because you go through uh, Stephen Greenblatt's book, Will in the World, and and every every book, in fairness to Greenblatt, every Shakespeare biography that says he must have, should have probably stop saying that you can't say that yeah it's probably it could be true sure it could equally not be true so stop pretending that you know what you're that you're that what you know what you're talking about when you're writing as much fiction as a as a novelist yeah it's schrodinger's cat but the box doesn't open so <laughs> right right you will never know yeah. you'll always just be stuck with this mystery and we can explore that mystery to whatever degree we like, and that's the fun of it, but we will never have concrete answers. And I love novels, so write me a novel. Don't write me a historical biography and 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 yeah. claim it's claim it's all fact fact based when it's a lot of assumptions. Yeah, I think yeah, I completely agree with your interpretation of that because if you just use the facts, it's easy to lose sight of Shakespeare as a human being. I've used this anecdote before, but the first exercise I had in my year eight English class on sh when we were studying Shakespeare was to list how many plays he wrote and to think of him in terms of numbers. We learnt the facts like when he was born, when he died, that sort of thing. We learnt these dates and it became very hard to, you know, think of him as more than like any of the other historical figures we'd studied because we'd learnt the facts of their lives, but we hadn't necessarily learnt about the fact that they were human. It's sometimes hard to grasp the fact that these people were human, that they lived lives as vivid as us. Yeah. Yeah, and it's now, hearing you talk about that that way is now making me realise that your teenager's take on Shakespeare is uncluttered by that schmutz I was talking about earlier. Uh, you came to it through your children's versions of the stories, and then you went to the texts on your own without being burdened by assumptions, by grown-ups explaining. You came to it uh, uh, unbothered and fresh, and you're seeing it for what it is, not for what it's supposed to be. And I think that's lovely, and I think that's what I'm trying to do in all the productions I direct or act in or write about. Thank you so much, Austin. That was, that's really kind. And that's really lovely to hear. Oh, it's been such a pleasure having you on.
this has this season has brought me so much joy I'm so glad I started doing this podcast I'm so glad I finally like decided to bite the bullet and do it good for you congratulations and how many episodes have you done this is episode number six you've done six episodes that's adorable (laughs) I've done 850 something (laughs) (laughs) okay well I've got some time I've got some time in fairness, I'm a little older than you. <laughs> I've I've been doing my podcast almost as long as you've been alive. Yeah, yeah. You started in 2006. I was born under 2005. Wow. <laughs> wow. But yeah, there's so much ahead for this podcast and there's so much interesting content coming, listeners. So get ready. So, Austin, how about we tell listeners where they can find you again, what you're up to at the moment? Yes, you can um, uh, You can find the Reduced Shakespeare Company website at reducedshakespeare.com. Um, I have a website called theshakespeareans.com. I've neglected it a bit during the pandemic, but uh, it started during the pandemic. Um, but it's basically, I mean, it's my life is one big Shakespeareans these days. Um, and my website, I, I hope... Um, uh embodies that uh uh we'll be touring the reduced shakespeare company will be touring um i'm on i'm still on twitter uh at austin titchener um uh, and at reduced and i think your um listeners would love pop-up shakespeare um yes it's because it's just i you know i i'm i love it because it looks beautiful and i had nothing to do with how it looks but um, my partner, Reed Martin, and I wrote it and I turned to it. Actually, I pull it off my own shelf a little bit, a lot just to go to check my dates, to check things. It's a wonderful resource, but it's also just a fun introduction. Um, uh, you're probably just the right age for it. It's good for little kids and then teenagers and above. I think middle school kids go, oh, this is babyish. But then when you get to be a late teen, you kind of go, oh, no, I think this is cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. There you go. <laughs> It's available wherever um, you find books. Excellent. Well, that's it for season one, everyone. Woohoo! It has been a fun journey. I'm so excited to get going with season two, but there's going to be a little surprise coming next week, so get ready for that. Welcome to The Teenager's Take. The short bit at the end of each episode where I talk about some of the things that stood out to me in each discussion and offer some ideas to take away from our conversations. Having Austin on and going on the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, I might add, was one heck of a brilliant experience. He calls his view the old farts take, but don't listen to that, because it's invigorating to get all these different and exciting perspectives on the show. There were so many salient points in this chat, it's almost impossible to narrow it down, but here are a few little nuggets of information to take away with you before next week's monologue roundup, which I'll talk about a bit more at the end. First of all, really, truly, the play's the thing. I literally can't say it enough. Nobody can truly know Shakespeare because there's not enough left of him. We've talked on this show in the past about the lengths to which people have gone to try and know him and his works, like the Ireland forgeries and the method acting of Daniel Day-Lewis, but indeed it's his plays that are the focus for a reason. 
Shakespeare never tried to get his plays published in his lifetimes, though there were many bad quarto versions knocking around the contemporary book market. It fell to Hemingway and Condell to compile all the works they could, and even so we have, or rather don't have, The Lost Love's Labour's One, if it ever really existed anyway, and Cardinio. The only things he did publish were his sonnets and poetry. If his friends hadn't decided to take the initiative Ben Jonson carefully applied to his own works, which were the first plays published in folio volume, we would know him as the writer of Venus and Adonis, which mirrored the classical fashion of his day, and as the author of a series of sentimental 14-liners written to several different muses. Austin mentioned treating Shakespeare, academia and performance as separate entities, and I've got to agree. Analyzing the texts gives me a huge thrill. I know, nerd. But analysis is not the same as immersing oneself in a character's emotional landscape. Lear's howl, 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 howl as he enters carrying Cordelia's body can be read as a cry of anguish, a bestial shriek, the wind personified, or an imperative, commanding one to weep for him with his daughter's loss. But then who does he command? Or what? In performance, though, it's not easy to explore all these different options at once. Choices have to be made by actor and director as to what Lear signifies. Overwhelming emotion and his characteristic stubbornness and individuality mean that Lear probably has a singular meaning, if you can dig down and find it. You just have to search hard enough and choose the emotional variant that fits your performance. That's what I mean when saying that studying his texts is profound and mind-boggling in its own way, but so is delving into Shakespeare's characters and rising to the surface with a new internal understanding of their words. Shakespearean biofiction is a great way of exploring his life without the limited facts cluttering the way. Fictional explorations remind one of the fact that he didn't want to be found. He didn't expect to be sought for by history and posterity. The progeny that he speaks of in the first set as such of his sonnets is his work. His line died out a long time ago, so all we've got is a set of portraits of varying style and quality, his published works of course, and the legacy of Elizabethan and Jacobean London that he inevitably imprinted himself upon, from performing in court to in a theatre which was topographically confused with a bear baiting room. Austen's recommendations in this episode, the play The Book of Will and Our Mutual Wreck Hamlet, are brilliant ways to start investigating this fascinating genre of Shakespeareans, acknowledging the humanity of the man and reducing it to its essence. A man, a father, a friend. That's all for season one, folks. There's one last episode coming as a kind of summary to cap it all off, and that's the Why We Love Shakespeare monologue roundup. In next week's episode, you're going to hear all of our lovely guests performing a monologue that helped them fall in love with the bard's words and magic, and why they mean so much to them, with a few words and a monologue from yours truly as well. This first season has been absolutely cracking, listeners. I assure you all that this is only the beginning of a teenager's take on Shakespeare. Till next week!